So, here we are, three case studies in. We started at my hometown, Franklin, and I concluded that it was developing but not gentrifying, which in hindsight was kind of obvious. Franklin is full of single-family homes, and we're just building more nicer homes. Then we headed to Plymouth, which has been building nice things, and I realized that whether Plymouth is gentrifying depends on whether you think gentrification requires displacement, or whether it can include building things for well-off people while totally ignoring poor people. And last week, we went to Chelsea, which I think is in early-stage gentrification. The fancy buildings are coming up, and apparently folks are preparing for the day when the rent goes up to unaffordable levels and they have to leave. We could keep doing case studies, but at some point it'll just be more confusing than enlightening. So, let's change things up and read a bit of theory. I first learned about Jane Jacobs from my advisors for this podcast, Professor Adams and Professor Arwade. They pointed me to her most famous book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Although it was written in 1961, some three years before Ruth Glass even coined the term gentrification, they figured it might be helpful in figuring out what exactly is gentrification and why it's so scary. Jacobs wasn't a social scientist or a philosopher. She was a journalist. She got into urban planning as an activist, defending her New York neighborhood against a guy who was unofficially called the master planner of the city. And you can see this in her writing. She starts her book with a screed against urban planning that sounds like something one could yell into a megaphone in 2017. She only vaguely defines neighborhoods and never defines diversity. She barely cites statistics, opting instead for a list of anecdotes. But her ideas of what constitutes a healthy city are powerful, and at the very least, they're worth taking a close look at. I'm Ajay Pandey, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. I started by reading two retrospectives on the book, one a 1994 City Journal article by Howard Musack, and the other a 2016 New Yorker review by Adam Gopnik. These articles hit on a similar point, that Jacobs is a small government kind of person. Not small government as in weak government, but small government as in local government. They both also mentioned something Jacobs called the sidewalk ballet, which sounds like a cool term to explore. With that in mind, I opened up a library copy of Death and Life complete with broken binding, and got reading. The antagonist of this book, and there is an antagonist, is the Garden City. It's this idea written up by a guy named Ebenezer Howard and pushed forward by a school of thought called the Decentrists. Howard thought of the Garden City as a sort of utopia, with designated commercial and public centers, a population strictly limited to 30,000 people, and open space everywhere. Homes turn away from the main street, there's a focus on car access, and things are only developed according to a strict plan. Basically, the Garden City model aims to make cities look and act more like suburbs. Suburbs like Franklin, Massachusetts. Admittedly, Franklin isn't the most well-planned place in the world, but otherwise, it's a pretty solid Garden City. We have industry, but it's consolidated into one area that I literally have no reason to go to. We have commerce, but it's mostly restricted to Route 140, which cuts across the center of Franklin. A lot of houses are not next to main streets. Lots of cul-de-sacs, lots of subdivisions, lots of places that get so little traffic they barely need sidewalks. And we have about 30,000 people and a lot of open space. It's not a farm town anymore, but we have our share of forests left. 
If you like privacy and getting around in cars, and if you don't mind your hometown being kinda boring, it's a great place to live. The issue, Jacobs writes, is when you take the intuitions of the Garden City model, separating out commercial and residential areas, dedicating areas to specific uses, designing in terms of blocks, and apply them to dense cities. Because the big difference between a suburban town like Franklin and a dense city like Boston is that in a proper city, your neighbors are far more likely to be strangers. And that doesn't work with small town thinking, or master plan of thinking for that matter. Jacobs thinks you need a different framework, the sidewalk ballet. She has a passage in Death and Life to illustrate it. I make my own first entrance into it a little after eight when I put out the garbage can. Surely a prosaic occupation, but I enjoy my part, my little playing as the droves of junior high school students walk by the center of the stage dropping candy wrappers. How do they eat so much candy so early in the morning? While I sweep up the wrappers, I watch the other rituals of the morning. Mr. Halpert unlocking the laundry's handcart from its mooring to a cellar door, Joe Carnacia's son-in-law bringing out the empty crates from the delicatessen, the barber bringing out his sidewalk folding chair, Mr. Goldstein arranging the coils of wire which proclaimed the hardware store is open, the wife of the tenement superintendent depositing her chunky three-year-old with a toy mandolin on the stoop, the vantage point from which he is learning the English his mother cannot speak. Now the primary children heading for St. Luke's dribble through the south, the children for St. Verona's Cross heading to the west, and the children for PS41 heading toward the east. Two new entrances are being made from the wings. Well-dressed and even elegant, women and men with briefcases emerge from doorways and side streets. Most of these are heading for the bus and subways, but some hover on the curb, stopping taxis which have miraculously appeared at the right moment, for the taxis are part of the wider morning ritual. Having dropped passengers from Midtown in the downtown financial district, they are now bringing downtowners up to Midtown. This passage goes on for several pages, basically writing out a 24-hour cycle. The idea is that a dense city should have people out and about, everywhere, at all times. If you're on a street with a healthy sidewalk ballet, then if you're mugged for some reason, someone will see it. If your kid is bullied, a local barber will shoo off the bully and maybe tell the bully's parents because they go to that barber. And if you're lost and your phone is dead, there will be a shopkeeper you can ask for directions. You end up with a neighborhood full of people you don't really know but still trust, anchored by a set of business owners that act as de facto authority figures. There are always eyes around, looking after you in a friendly, non-dystopian way. Let's compare that to the Garden City model. In the commercial centers, things are hip and happening. Businesses are open, people are out and about. It's a great place to be. But in residential areas like the one I'm in right now, nothing is happening. No one is out, no one is watching, and I probably look really sketchy just walking around in the middle of the day with a microphone in my hand. This is fine when you're in the suburbs. This little subdivision complex I'm in takes 10 minutes to walk around, it has maybe 70 homes, 75 at most, and folks aren't about to just wander into here. If you live here, you could probably identify most of the people who exist in this space, especially the ne'er-do-wells. But what if this place housed 10, 20 times the people? And what if folks could just walk in whenever or take the bus in? Now you're in a neighborhood of strangers. Because no one is out and about, you rarely run into anyone. You don't build a community outside of your friends. And because no one is watching, you don't really trust the outside to be safe. That is what Jane Jacobs calls the great blight of dullness. Gray, lifeless neighborhoods with no community enforcement of social norms. At best, you'll get creepily empty streets lined with gates and security guards. Or maybe 
you'll get a neighborhood with lots of traffic and no one on the sidewalk. Or worse, you'll end up with a crime-ridden mess. It's a jump, for sure. And Jacobs doesn't provide data for this. She thinks a long series of case studies suffices. But her framework of the sidewalk ballet and the public community of strangers it requires is, I think, worth exploring. Jacobs says that diversity creates that sidewalk ballet. Being a journalist and not a philosopher, she doesn't define diversity. But she apparently means diversity of buildings, businesses, and especially residents. In age, race, background, everything. I'd rather she named that, but that's kind of what she's going for. The way she puts it, if you can get a diverse set of small businesses that each cater to their own audience, you'll get a diverse set of people going to those businesses. By comparison, a large chain can't do that. Chains have economy of scale on their side, but a stop and shop can't attract an Indian American clientele quite like an Indian owned grocery store. So if you can encourage a mix of smallish businesses selling to their own specific set of people, you'll get the diverse set of people you want in your neighborhood. Jacobs outlines four big requirements for neighborhood diversity. One, the district, and indeed as many of its internal parts as possible, must serve more than one primary function, preferably more than two. These must ensure the presence of people who go outdoors on different schedules and are in the place for different purposes, but who are able to use many facilities in common. Two, most blocks must be short. That is, streets and opportunities to turn corners must be frequent. Three, the district must mingle buildings that vary in age and condition, including a good proportion of old ones, so that they vary in the economic yield they must produce. This mingling must be fairly close-grained. Four, there must be a sufficiently dense concentration of people for whatever purposes they may be there. This includes dense concentration in the case of people who are there because of residence. Let's go through what that means. Mixed primary use. Primary uses are fundamental reasons to go to a neighborhood. Offices, factories, colleges, tourism, entertainment, residences. You need multiple primary uses to make sure there are people walking around all the time. And if people are walking around all the time, they'll support the secondary uses. Restaurants, grocers, banks, coffee shops. Think of it this way. If your neighborhood is dominated by professionals coming to work, you'll get a mob on the sidewalk during rush hour and lunch, and nothing at all other times. It's hard to run a business in a place like that. But if your neighborhood has professionals going to work and a thriving music scene, now you're getting foot traffic at rush hour, lunch, and evenings. You'll get more even foot traffic over the day, which makes everything easier. Does Jacobs provide data for this? No, of course not. But she makes sense, I guess. Small blocks. If you have large blocks, you end up with fewer routes to go places, which means the interesting places get more concentrated on a few streets, and all the other streets get that great blight of dullness. The more streets and corners, the easier it is to explore, and the more reason businesses have to spread out over a neighborhood. A mix of new and old buildings. Small businesses and working class people can't afford new buildings. They just can't. I mean, yes, buildings need to be replaced and renovated. But if you replace or renovate all the buildings at once, you end up with a block of area that's only affordable to richer folks and chain businesses. And then the whole place deteriorates at once, which is not a fun look. Again, Jacobs has no data, just anecdotes. And high density. Jacobs takes care to distinguish density, how many housing units are in an area, from overcrowding, how many people are in housing units. Overcrowding is bad obviously. But getting a bunch of people close together, 
Jacobs thinks the sweet spot is 125 to 200 homes per acre, is how you get a bunch of strangers walking around all the time, everywhere. Basically, to Jacobs, homogeneity in any way is the work of Satan. A neighborhood of buildings that all look the same, or at least have a related aesthetic, is cold and sad and maybe dangerous in her eyes. Then again, don't the buildings accused of gentrification all have a related aesthetic? Big windows, bright colors on white walls, new brick and steel? Yeah, they kind of do. But we'll get to that later. For now, I need to see the sidewalk ballet for myself. Let's go exploring. So here's the thing. I can't truly check whether there's a sidewalk ballet at any of these places. I'd have to do a 24-hour cycle checking several streets, and I have a week to make this episode. So what I'm going to do instead is more of a quick litmus test. I'm going to go to a couple neighborhoods in Boston that I'm more or less familiar with and uh, ask a few questions myself. Where are all the businesses? Jacob says that if you have people at a regular basis, then businesses will be there to service those people. Are there people out and about on the middle of a Wednesday where it's going to be pushing high 70s, 80 degrees? And finally, do I look sketchy there? Again, Jacob says that a healthy city neighborhood should handle strangers relatively well. And I'm going to be a stranger in those neighborhoods. Better than nothing. Let's roll. This is Beacon Hill. It is a neighborhood of, as of 2010, about 9,000 people. I think most neighborhoods in Boston are hover around 10,000 people. It's mostly a residential neighborhood. Lots of really nice houses for really nice, fancy people. In terms of other uses, the town hall, the state house, Suffolk University, Suffolk Law are all technically in Beacon Hill, but they're all kind of in a corner. They're barely in the neighborhood proper. Right now, I'm sitting uh, next to a cafe in Charles Street. If you want to think of Beacon Hill as a town of its own, Charles Street is the main street. And you have your classic main street things going on. You have bakeries, your tailors, your chocolate shops. And most of the small businesses are closed right now. I think they open around 10 for the most part. But there's still people walking around. Maybe they're getting breakfast, maybe they're going to work, maybe they're walking their dog. The sidewalks themselves are too narrow for for benches, but they're definitely trash cans everywhere. Like they know people are walking around and out and about. But when you're in the middle of Beacon Hill, it's a bit of a different story. One thing you realize when you're in the middle of Beacon Hill as opposed to on Charles Street is that all the buildings, they really do look the same. Brick townhouses, according to Wikipedia, most of them are modeled after a style from the early from the early 1800s, and everything kind of has that aesthetic. There's very little deviation from it. I remember last time I wandered around Beacon Hill, I ran into a parking garage that kind of looked like one of the townhouses, and the place is very quiet. The majority of the people walking around are either cleaning staff for the houses, contractors, or like delivery people. 
Myrtle Street has a little bit more. There's a playground, there's a school. And there are a couple of businesses that as of 9.45 or so were completely empty. But otherwise, house, 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 more houses. Right now I'm looking at an alley that looks very pretty. It has some nice plants in it, but there's a gate here. Back Bay, Massachusetts. The internet wouldn't give me a straight answer as to how many people actually live here, but it's a big place and there's a lot going on. In terms of main uses, you have uh, a lot of offices and commercial centers. You have the Prudential Center nearby, you have Copy Place nearby, and there are also a bunch of residential stuff to the north. You also have a bunch of colleges either nearby or within the area. The Fenway Colleges are a walking distance away and Berkeley College of Music has buildings all over Back Bay. A lot of the uh, big stuff happens on two different streets in Back Bay. Boylston Street is alive. People are everywhere and it's a pretty solid mix for for a place that's often for a place that's pretty white. Boylston Street really shows the architectural style of Boston as a whole which is all of it. Puritan era buildings, right next to concrete, next to brick, next to glass and steel. It's kind of why I like Boston. On Boylston Street, you'll find a lot of banks, a lot of luxury brands. You're actually more likely to find a Starbucks than you are to find an indie cafe. Once you get to Newbury Street, you get a more uniform aesthetic. Not to the Beacon Hill level, but a more uniform set of 1800s throwback brick townhouses. You also got a few more smaller businesses, although there's still a lot of chains, still a lot of luxury brands, and the occasional Starbucks. And from my experience, all the stuff here on Newbury Street is really expensive, and I honestly wonder how many people still live on this street. And then we get to Marlborough Street, which is dead today at 2.20 on a Wednesday. This place is even quieter and deader than the depths of Beacon Hill. There are barely even cars on the street. This is kind of spooky. North End. This little neighborhood has a population of about 10,000 people. As of 2010, it's probably gone up by now. And it is an iconic neighborhood of Boston. In terms of main uses, uh, it's primarily residential. And then, I don't know what else in North End. I think just tourism. I think the entire place is, is run by tourism. Because we have a bunch of Freedom Trail stuff around here. We have the Old North Church, we have Paul Revere's house, the Haymarket's nearby, and I mean, it's the North End, of course. Right now, 
we are actually in a playground, hence the noise. One thing that I realized, it's 11.30, give or take. The main street is North Hanover, but even the side streets, you can see businesses, there are people out and about, and they're not chains, which is the most amazing part, is that you don't have to have massive economies of scale to run a business. Even in one of the little corners outside of the bustle of Hanover Street. Admittedly, the businesses aren't completely evenly distributed across North End. There are still parts that are just row house, row house, row house, row house. But it's certainly far more dispersed than, say, Beacon Hill was. There's also a pretty interesting mix of buildings. Jacobs wasn't wrong. There's a definite mix of buildings in size, color, height, style. Also, classic short blocks that makes North End kind of a maze. And it is a very dense place. There are buildings everywhere. There are no large, expansive parks. This playground itself is on the small side. And I realized the place is actually really small for how many people live here. I think this might be our sidewalk ballet. There we have it. Even almost 50 years later, the North End is a prime example of the vibrant city neighborhood Jane Jacobs so cherished. But there's a problem. None of these places are affordable. Not even the North End. Obviously, Beacon Hill is pricey. I checked Zillow. Most of the houses there are worth multiple millions of dollars, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a one-bedroom apartment for less than $1,700 a month. Similar deal in Back Bay. Most of the houses were over $600,000, some were over a million, and most of the one-bedroom apartments were over 1700 a month. But even in the North End, most of the houses were over $500,000, and most of the one-bedroom apartments were over $1,600 a month. So I was getting a cannoli after lunch, because it's the North End, of course. And I talked to the person behind the counter of this, this small, out-of-the-way bakery, and I just said, I dream of living here in the North End. I really do. I really do dream about living here. And she was like, forget about it. Rent here for a studio, she said was like $12.50 a month. It's even higher on Zillow. And she said, when I was here, rent was $700 a month. I forget what she said the rent was for, but $700 a month. And she said, I don't know who even lives here. You know, who can kind of, who can afford that rent? And maybe the rent will go down because there are no jobs here. But I do know who would live in the North End with rent like that. People like me, young adults, maybe a few years out of college, who work a technical job in Kendall Square or the Financial District with a $60,000, $70,000 salary, who went to the North End when they were a child, who always loved food, who always fantasized living not just in Boston, but steps away from some of the best food in the state. And as long as young professionals with the kind of salary expected from a STEM degree are moving into the North End, that rent won't go down for a good while. Imagine that! The neighborhood called Little Italy is now void of the Italian immigrants who define it to this day. It has to be. The sidewalk ballet still twirls, but each step is hollow, taken over by the ever-advancing specter of gentrification. How's that for cosmic horror? We need another week on this book. A correction on last week's episode.
The articulated Silver Lion bus I was on is a hybrid diesel-electric model, which partially explains why it was so quiet. I still think the MBTA cheaped out on the 111 bus. This episode is based off The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. It was first published in 1961 by Random House. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Pandey. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at afande at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.